So today we're going to end our series on what the Bible has to say about politics. And we started with the whole notion of the Bible talking about politics and that politics is, by definition, the way people organize and the way they influence one another. That's what politics is. So anything that's communal, anything that involves a group of people doing anything is political. We typically use the term political to mean that part of interaction that we don't like. But church politics is a reality. There's an organization here. There's a way it's organized. There's a way that influence happens. And that is based on three things. There are the pillars of self-governance. And those pillars are rule of law, consent of the governed, and private property. Those are the three big pillars of self-governance. It's not the only way to do political organization. Some churches are basically little tyrannies where the dictator tells everyone what to do. This is common in third world countries where they come from a culture of dictatorship and the churches organize themselves around what they're used to. Uh, It's not all that uncommon in our country too where someone gets a little fiefdom and they, they control it very tightly. Very importantly though, in our culture, you can vote with your feet. And so when we have political organizations that are self-governing, they have these three components. And then we've gone through rule of law and consent of the governed. Today we're going to do the third one, which is private property. Rule of law, as we looked at, has two big components that are found in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments basically say God makes the rules. And the last six says what God cares about is that we love one another, that we respect one another's persons and property. You can't love someone else if you're taking their possessions away from them. Embedded in the rule of law is private property. Thou shalt not steal. You can't steal something unless the other person owns it. Then we looked at consent of the governed. Last week we looked at Israel was organized around consent of the governed. That when God brought the Israelites to the edge of the promised land, he said, Choose from among yourselves judges. God knew who the best judges would be, but he said, You choose. But because he wants us to be governed because we choose to do so. The notion of voluntary action is embedded in all of this because that's where life and prosperity comes from. Voluntary action, not coerced action. He organized the church around consent of the governed. He created elders. And he says, you choose to pay the elders if they're doing a good job. So it's a voluntary submission that we have, not a required submission. And then we have private property. So today, I want to go through three points about private property. That First, that God established private property in the Scripture. We'll look at some scriptural basis that private property is the preferred means of political organization as one of the pillars of self-governance. Two, that private property is a basis of spiritual and material prosperity. And three, that the alternative to private property as a basis of society is violence and tyranny. It's really, that's really the two ends of the spectrum. So, first God established private property. Let's look at Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. You know, while we're looking, while we're turning to that, I just happened to search the word own in the Bible, and I came up with over 2,900 hits. And sometimes it's look to your own interest, you know, mind your own business, that sort of thing. But that is still part of our private space. You know, I like to say that God gave us three things we can control, who we trust, our 
attitude or our perspective that we choose to have and then the actual actions that we take and that there's 8 billion people in the world and we get to make those choices for one. That doesn't keep people from trying to make the choices for everybody else. And when we say look to our own interests, that's just a an extrapolation of the reality that God has given us this ability to choose, this ability to make choices on our own. It's amazing because he knows best and he said, I want you to do consensually what I ask you to do, not mandatorily. That's the way God set it up. And he said, here, you own this life, take care of it. Well, Exodus 20:15, they're at the mountain of God. The God's giving the Ten Commandments, and he says, In 13, you shall not murder. In 14, you shall not commit adultery. 15, you shall not steal. 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And all these things are integrated. They're one part of each other. Because if you steal, what is your motivation for stealing? Envy. Yeah, you want want what someone else has, and so you take it by force. If you're willing to take it by force, what do you ultimately have to be willing to do? Murder the other person. And the most prized possession someone has is their relationships. And the most prized relationship is marriage. And so adultery is actually a form of stealing. You're stealing that relationship from that couple. You shall not bear false witness. Why do people lie? Generally, it's because they want to extract something from the other person. So this whole notion of extraction is something that God says don't do. So one of the ways we can look at private property in the Bible is to look at the opposite. To look at stealing. Because stealing is the opposite of respecting private property. Look over a couple of chapters here at Exodus 22 verse 1. This is again part of the law that God gave Israel while they're on their way to the promised land to their new nation that he's going to set up as a self-governing organization and he's going to base it on rule of law, consent of govern, and private property. Looks what he says. If a man steals an oxen or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it. So in other words, I've stolen this animal and now I have actually taken full possession of it and used it for my own benefit somehow. I've turned it into money. Or I've eaten it. Then here's what you do. He shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So this stealing is of such a destructive nature to our community and our society that we're going to put in a law that says if you take that animal and then you fully possess it, you got to pay it back four or five times. Now, of course, as with all the laws in the Old Testament here, if you refuse to comply, you just get stoned. You either take care of one another and restore what you did wrong, or you just can't live among us anymore. Why? Because if you won't respect rule of law, you're going to destroy our society. You don't take other people's property. Look at Leviticus 19. In Leviticus, again, part of the law, God gave Israel while they're on their way to the promised land. Leviticus 19, verse 11. You shall not steal nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So when you say, well, I swear by God's name that this is true and it's not true, you're actually defaming God. Because God wants the truth told. Verse 13, you shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. 
So cheating is robbing. Because you're defrauding someone. You promised one thing and you give another. This is stealing. The wages of him who's hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. If you promise to pay someone a wage, you don't go back on that promise. You don't use fulfilling a promise that you made as leverage over that person. That is stealing. Because once they've fulfilled their obligation to do the job, that wage is now theirs. You don't have a right to keep it anymore. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear the Lord your God. I'm the Lord. If someone has a disadvantage or a disability, you don't take advantage of them. Because that is stealing. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor. Nor honor the person of the mighty. Okay? So if somebody's poor, you don't say, Oh, well, you know, they, they just didn't, they just needed that. They stole that because they needed it, so we're going to let them off. No. Stealing is stealing. They pay it back. And if someone's mighty, you don't say, Oh, well, we can't enforce justice on them because we might get in trouble or we may need something from them sometime. No. No socialism. No cronyism. Equal justice under the law. You know, this idea of equal opportunity is not only biblical, it's the basis for human dignity. When you know, I have every opportunity that the rich man has, and if you're poor and you say, you know, nobody is giving me any special exemption, they expect me to step up. And if you're wealthy and you're said to, you know, just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you don't have the same requirement everybody else does. You bring human dignity to the whole spectrum of humanity. The spirit of our age, the spirit of Marxism, says, you know, we all should have equal outcomes. And if you don't have what you want, the thing that you should be doing is envying the person that has what you want. And what you should do is give the government a massive amount of power and we will go steal from that person and give to you. So it's all equal. Well, it's very appealing at a base, fleshly part of humanity. But what God says is, no, we want a a just system that allows equal opportunity. And what we're going to do is we're going to leave it up to you to make a decision about whether you're going to be generous or not. And when we do that, we bring community harmony and dignity. Well, When Israel took this law that they got in the wilderness and they went into the land and they conquered the high ground. And then after they'd conquered the high ground, God said, okay, now we're going to divvy this up into parcels and everybody's going to go do the rest of the conquering on your own and in your areas. And they divvied up 12 parcels and they cast lots, kind of like a draft. Zebulun gets parcel 5. Number 7, Judah gets parcel 7. And then this land was given to them for all time in perpetuity. Because God said, we're going to have private property here in Israel. There was a little bit of common land. And it was the common land for grazing around the cities of the Levites. Because the Levites didn't get land. They got cities. And he said, I expect you to voluntarily take care of the Levites. The tithe was kind of the national tax and the national offering, sort of all wrapped in one, and it was voluntary. 
How about some voluntary taxation? Would we all like that? That's the way he set it up. Look at Leviticus chapter 25. Pretty fascinating thing about the land. Verse 10, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your unintended, untended vine, for it's the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall not eat the produce from its field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. If any of you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells you to according to the number of years of the crops. So you can sell a number of years of crops to someone else, but on that 50th year, keep in mind on the 50th year, the land reverts. It reverts back to the original owner. When Ruth came back to Bethlehem with Naomi, she sought out the kinsman redeemer because their land was no longer in their possession. And there was a law that said... Even before the year of Jubilee, if you could get in the good protective covering of this kinsman redeemer, they would pay the price for that land to get it back for that family. Because this possession of land was not just an incidental thing. It was the very core of the organization of the society in Israel. Now, by the way, Israel never honored these Jubilees. And when God set the number of years for the exile of of 70 years, he said, I'm getting all the Sabbath years, because you're supposed to lay your ground fallow every seventh year, and my years of Jubilee, you've missed 70 of them. They didn't do either one. And I'm going to take all 70 back, and I'm going to rest the land for 70 years, because you didn't do what I asked you to do. Well, what about the New Testament? You say, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, didn't God shift and go to socialism? It wasn't the New Testament church socialistic? You know what? That's a very common teaching. And since we're at Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about the pilgrims here in a minute. Because that's actually what they thought. So let's look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anything among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. So you look at this and say, okay. Now we got the Old Testament where we had the law... And now we have the New Testament where we have grace. We have the Old Testament where we had private property. And now the New Testament, we got everything held in common. It's a natural uh, conclusion to come to. But look more carefully in chapter 5, verse 1. 
But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Did they sell the possession because the apostles demanded it? Who decided to sell the possession? They did. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. So they have a little collusion here. They sold it for a certain amount and they divvied it into two parcels. Our part, God's part. And brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And implied in here is, and claimed that this was the full price of the property. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Now, is Peter saying, you have to give it all? Look what he says. While it remained, was it not your own? See, it was your property. You didn't have to sell it. It was yours. Did Peter demand that he give it back to Peter? Look, Peter was the one distributing all the proceeds, right? It was coming to Peter and Peter got to distribute it. So was Peter saying, sell that property or you're going to hell? Was Peter saying, sell that property or I won't take confession from you? Was Peter saying, sell that property or I'm not going to give you communion? No, he says, it's yours. You didn't have to sell it. And after it was sold, was it not your own control? You could give as much of it as you wanted to. You didn't have to give it all. You could give a little bit of it. But when you came and said, I gave it all and you really didn't, what you're doing is you're undermining everything that's going on here. Why? You're defrauding the people. You're lying. You're trying to get honor based on a a lot. You're stealing. And you're lying to God. And you're defrauding His name. Remember, don't swear in the name of God and take His name in vain. And this is the foundation of the church and God wants to make a point. He says, you don't do this. It's yours. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? So, see, this was all voluntary. That's the big point. Is generosity the norm in the New Testament? Yes. Is that new? No. What was the Levitical tithe? It was all voluntary. And you know, it was like there were three tithes. There was like two that were annual and one that was every third year. It was like God wanted 22% of your stuff to kind of make everything keep going. And in Malachi, if you read Malachi, he said, Look, you're robbing me by not bringing voluntarily your stuff to the temple. The reason you have these famines is because I am paying you back for robbing me because you're not supporting the Levites like you need to do it. Because he wanted voluntary submission. Now there's consequences when we're stingy. Huge consequences. As a matter of fact, that feeds envy. It creates a vacuum for Marxism. This is something that was misunderstood by the pilgrims. So when they came to America, the first year, they held all things in common. Why? They didn't understand that that was a voluntary thing. So there were common fields, common ownership. And the first year, half of their number died. They starved. They lived off of crustaceans from the sea and bad crops. This is all in William Bradford's uh, Plymouth Colony book. Phenomenal book. If you hadn't read it, I recommend it. So after the first year, they decided to give each family a small plot, something like an acre. And Bradford says, well, something miraculous happened. 
Whereas previously, if the women and children went to the field, someone would say, oh, shame, shame. A man should be doing that. And now the whole family pitched in and they went in and they all went to work. And from then on, we didn't have any famine problems. The next year, they went from one acre to five acres. Problem solved. And then Bradford says, you know, if there was ever a group of people that could hold everything in common and share and work for one another, this is the group. I mean, look what they did together. Look at the dangers they endured for this vision of having a place where their children could grow up in a godly community. If ever there was, but there's just something about humanity that needs ownership. Well, if Bradford had studied his Bible correctly, he would have known that already because it's right here. From that time on, private property became the norm in America. And in fact, because there was not a monopoly of land ownership in America like there was in Europe, self-governance sunk its roots for the first time on a broad, massive scale. And America because of that, brought massive prosperity to the whole world. So, biblically, private property is the thing, point number one. Point number two, private property is the basis for spiritual and material prosperity. The story of the pilgrims is a a good story to even talk about that. But let's just look at the natural outcome of the opposite of private property. Look at John 10.10 real quick. John 10.10, Jesus speaking. The thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. It's a nice definition of a thief, isn't it? A thief is someone that doesn't care to interact with you for any other than two purposes. To steal from you, ultimately to coerce you, and they'll kill you if they can. And the result is destruction. Well, let's go to Mark 10, 18 with that in mind. Mark chapter 10, verse 18. This is the interaction Jesus has with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler had asked him, What shall I do that I might possess eternal life? Aionios Zoe. This, this life that is totally fulfilled. I want to have it. The total fulfillment of life. So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good but that one that's God. So... That's the starting place is who gets to make the rules? God. And who's God? Right here, Jesus, right in front of you. So we're going to have a little lesson on the rule of law right here. So that's the first half of the Ten Commandments right there. I'm God, and here's what I tell you. Here's the second half of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So, I get to make the rules, because I'm God. Here's the rule I want to make. Treat other people and their sphere of influence and their possessions with respect. That's it. That's the law and the prophets. Well, let's look at this list. Adultery does what? What does it steal, kill, and destroy? Families. Relationships. Trust. How about murder? What does it steal, kill, and destroy? Life. Liberty. Opportunity. How about stealing? What does that kill, steal, and destroy? You know, I've spent some time in Africa. In Africa, they have an interesting phenomenon in that their their form of tribalism is socialistic. 
their view, their cultural view is you don't have private property, like I own something, you have tribal property. It's communal. So there's these little huts in Africa where you can buy one day portion of rice. And you can go right down to the store and buy a jumbo box of rice for some fraction of the price. But people will go buy one day of rice. And it makes economic sense for them to pay three times as much. You know why? Because if they buy the box of rice, the neighbors will come in the village and say, oh, I heard you have extra rice. Can I borrow it? And what they mean by that is, I have a social right to demand that your extra comes to me. With the full understanding, if I ever have extra, you can demand it back. Now, Africa is an amazing, vastly rich, southern Africa is a vastly rich place. It's it's mind-boggling to me, living out here in the desert, how, how wealthy this place is. It rains there. Yeah, yeah, it's when water falls out of the sky. They're, they have this volcanic soil. I've, I visited a guy's house. He had a little place there, and he had this like 10-foot mango tree. And I said, well, how old's that mango tree? Oh, about 18 months. What? Well, how big was it when he planted? Oh, you know, it's a little sapling. How can that happen? His, his fence was a bunch of cane stuff he had put in the ground. It starts growing. <laughs> It's just unbelievable. And the diamond mines, mineral mines, oil and gas, huge rivers. But because they have this everything owned in common notion, instead of having a boom town when, when they discover a new mine, they have a civil war. Because you've got to figure out which tribe owns that and then which big man gets to distribute it to the tribe members. The, the private property idea is not there. And because of this notion, even though there's vast wealth all around them, no one's allowed to accumulate any of it. There's no allow what we would say in economics, no allowance for an accumulation of capital. So they can't ever get any investment going. So by having safety, where I say, if I possess something, I'm confident it's not going to be taken away from me, it creates this notion of building and investing. And that's where material prosperity comes from. I will invest today for a benefit tomorrow. Our, our society is blessed with this notion of private property and the notion that, that that is something that's sacred and you don't take it away. And, and that's where, large part, this vast material wealth that we have comes from. Spiritual wealth comes from the dignity I have as a person to choose to share. Now, if, if I choose to hoard, I will be spiritually impoverished. But that's my choice. You can see that physically. If we fill up our house with old newspapers and <coughs> empty cans because we're hoarding it, we have a, there's a physical manifestation of poverty, even though we have a lot of junk. And you see this with homeless people with their little hoarding of what's in their shopping cart. All these things come to the opposite of steel killing and destroying, which is to possess and to build up. You know, in the Middle Ages, after Rome splintered into pieces, the number one consideration became safety. Because there are marauding bands. There's Vikings coming down and stealing. There's marauding bands. So people, people accumulated to someone that had knights and castles. Because it could keep them safe. 
This is the number one need of humanity is to have safety. And they basically gave up their property rights to do it. So serfdom developed. And serfdom is a vast system of institutional slavery. Because the serfs belong to the land, and they're a part of the land. They have certain rights, but they don't have any property. Because in America we had private property, things like the agricultural revolution developed. I think I've told this story before. John Deere invented the lightweight steel plow. And it created the agricultural revolution that made the ability of the earth to feed people explode. Which is largely responsible for why the population of the earth exploded. Well, in Europe, under serfdom, who's going to buy that lightweight steel plow? The landowners aren't going to buy it. All that does is create more time for the serfs. It doesn't do him any good. The serfs aren't going to buy it. There's no incentive for them to, and they don't have any money. But in America, somebody owns 40 acres, and you tell them, if you buy this plow, you can do this with the same amount of labor. You can do 160 acres. Well, yeah, I'll buy that steel plow. Serfdom fell under the pressure of prosperity in America. This is the two ends of the spectrum. We can have private property that's safe, that whereas people have an incentive to invest, or we can have violence. Ephesians 4.28 says, If you're stealing, stop. And instead, work. And become generous. See, stealing is a manifestation of envy. Envy pulls people apart. It destroys. There's no relationships that are built when there's, built when there's envy. But work creates prosperity, and generosity creates community. That's the two ends of the spectrum. Well, going back to Mark 10, the rich young ruler says to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So this is really important. We tend to get this thing from the kind of evangelical misapplication of everything being about heaven and hell. We tend to say, well, he wanted eternal life, and what he's asking him is, uh, you know, how do I get saved? Because he, you know, because Jesus was Billy Graham, and this is a, he was, you know, not Jewish. He was Baptist, and, and you know, that's just a total misunderstanding of what's going on here. Because Jesus looked at him, and loved him, and said, "I love this guy. Why do we love this guy? Because he's doing what I ask him to do. He's keeping all these things from the. He, Jesus didn't say, no, you didn't." <laughs> No, you didn't. Stop lying to me. And we saw what happens when you do that from Ananias and Sapphira, right? He said, I love this guy. This guy is awesome. So I'm just going to give him an opportunity to step it up to the ultimate level. You're doing good, young man. But now let's see if you want the best. Here's what you do. He said, one thing you lack. You're doing good. One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor. Have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. If you really want things, then just give everything up that you possess. That's just one extra. You're doing great. But if you really want to step it up, give everything. And the rich young ruler went away sad because he was very rich. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and he said, you know rich people have a real problem. By the way, if you want to be in the upper 1% of earners in the world, you need to make about $32,000 a year. What does that mean about Americans? We're all this rich young ruler. Even the people on welfare. 
They're in the upper, like 15% or something. He says, they have a real problem because riches keep you from generosity. And that seems counterintuitive, right? The more you have, the more generous you ought to be. Well, it's really not that way. The more we have, the more we tend to hoard. You know, Philippians 2 is really instructive in this. Philippians 2 says that Jesus was in heaven and he was equal with God. I looked at this word that did not regard equality with God a thing to be grass, which that's wording's always been confusing to me, you know? And here's a way I think I can understand it that's consistent with what these words mean. Jesus didn't hoard it. He was God and he didn't hoard being God. And what he did is he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay down all my stuff, all of it, and I'm going to invest it in these people. Jesus actually did this. And because he did it, his name was elevated even higher. Because now he's not just the king of creation, he's the king of humanity as well. Because God elevated him to that point. This is where spiritual prosperity comes from, when we have private property and we choose to be generous with it. You know, Matthew 6 is really interesting. It says, Don't lay up treasure on earth where moths can eat and rust can decay and it can be stolen. Lay up treasure in heaven because it can't be stolen. Isn't that interesting? You ever think about that? See, if we have stuff on earth, it's ultimately kind of passing through to someone else's hands, right? At a minimum, you're going to die. So invest it such that you lay up stuff no one will ever take from you. You ever think about private property being a pillar of heaven and the new earth? You know, there's going to be mansions. Does it say there's going to be mansions and everybody's going to be wandering around in them, wondering whose they are? You're going to have a mansion and you're going to get to invite people into it. You say, well, we have private property. Won't we just throw it down at Jesus' feet? Maybe. Because that's generosity. Will will we be generous with our... I would certainly hope so. But does it say they threw it down at Jesus' feet and Jesus picked them up and gave them the Salvation Army? (laughs) Still their crowns, right? They were choosing to do it. Hebrews 10 says that they endured suffering. These people that the writer's talking. See, you endured suffering and you lost your possessions for your faith. Because you knew you had a better possession in heaven. See, you lost your physical things on earth because you knew you had a better possession in heaven. So you did really great. Because you have this possession in heaven. See, private property goes all the way through. So the third point to end is, we've already made, but just to bring it home, that tyranny and violence oppresses and private property... And generosity is what builds. Look at Genesis 6 real quick. Genesis chapter 6. A lot of people miss this. It's really an important point. Genesis 6 verse 11. The earth was also corrupt before God. This is right before the Noah's flood. The earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. I'm destroying the world, and here's why. 
It's because the earth's filled with violence. Why would the earth be filled with violence? Because there's envy and murder. Who is the murderer from the beginning? Satan. Who is the person that fans the flame of envy? Has God really said? Do you really think you can't have your own way? Don't you want something better for you? The root of all this is, I will ascend to the Most High. And the spirit of tyranny is the spirit of murder and deceit. In Nazi Germany, they said, hey, you know, this merchant class is stealing glory from the warrior class. And the merchant class is made up of all these Jews. And when they've amassed all this wealth, they've stolen from you. Let's take it back. And of course, that led to murder. And it led to war. In the city of God, St. Augustine tells this story. Indeed, that was an apt and true reply which was given to Alexander the Great by a pirate who had been seized. For when that king had asked the man what he meant by keeping hostile possession of the sea, he answered with bold pride, What you mean by seizing the whole earth? But because I do it with a petty ship, I'm called a robber. And while you who does it with a great fleet are styled emperor. (laughs) It's an interesting point. Well, Marxism in America is just human nature run amok. When it says, envy wealth, let's transfer it. Give me the power to transfer it. Envy property owners. We need to tax it and regulate it so that everyone benefits. Envy businesses because they're taking advantage of you. They make a profit. Everyone knows that profit is abuse. Let's take it very taxation and regulation. And then we'll all own everything in common. Which means no one owns anything. Which means the leaders get to own it all. And they're the ones that are propagating this. I will ascend to the Most High. Well, what's the answer? The answer is generosity. Let's end with 1 Timothy chapter 6. We have this amazing heritage of self-governance. We have rule of law. We have consent of the governed. At least that's the structure of our government. It's supposed to be that way. And we have private property. At least it's supposed to be that way. It's under attack. It's under assault by people who would ascend to the Most High. They don't want you to make your own choices. They want to make them for you. 1 Timothy 6 says, 6 verse 2, Those who have believing masters... Let them not despise them because they're brethren. If you're a slave and you have a a believing master, work all the harder for him. Don't say, well, you should set me free. I I, I should have the same thing you have. Well, no, that's your deal. You're in an economic position. Be all the better. Serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Say, I love serving you. Teach and exhort those things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to hold some words, even the words of our Lord Jesus, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he's a proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes. Verse 5, skip down. And useless wranglings of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So there's this idea that I can, because I have some sort of spiritual authority, extract money from you. Like saying, for example... Uh, give me your money and I'll give you a blessed handkerchief and it'll make you all better. Well, withdraw from people like that. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. So we all want gain and profit, right? But you've got to give it the right way. And godliness with contentment is the way to get there. 
We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, be content. Don't envy. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. The desire to have more is slavery to more. You, you end up being owned by your stuff. Instead of you owning the stuff, it owns you. For the love of money is roots of all kinds of evil, from which some have strayed from the faith with greediness and pierced them through with many sorrows. And now, verse 17. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life, this life that's really awesome. So the answer is generosity. It's not, it's not to just be poor. It's to transfer everything you have to the use of God however He sees fit. It may mean give it all away in some instances. It may be give part of it away and invest the other in a business. It may be, mean all kinds of things. God will direct that to you. But the mental exercise of saying, I don't own this, it's God's, it's passing through my hands, I'm going to invest it optimally in other people. That is the essence of self-governance. It's the essence of spiritual prosperity. And it leads to material prosperity. The willingness to invest in others. You know, Houston is our biggest city. It's a pretty nasty place geographically. It's a mosquito haven. It has the same basic uh, climate that Bangladesh does. If you've ever been there in August, you wonder, why does anyone live here? <laughs> One of the reasons it's there is because an oil man named Cullen invested like $150 million at a time when that was more like billions in the medical center. Just because he said, you know, I've got more than I need. I'm going to invest in other people. He basically invented modern day philanthropy. And you don't probably never even heard of him unless you're in the oil business. Because he didn't do it to become famous. He did it because he understood this. That's what happens. When we are generous. And not only generous with our money, but our time. Because as citizens, we the people have the ultimate authority in America. And you know, to be engaged in the political process, to take the time to get educated, to vote, and if you're called to actually get engaged in some, in a, at, a, at a higher level, it takes a lot of time and effort and you don't get much thanks for it. But that's another level of generosity. It's investing in our community. It's investing in our nation. It's investing in our state. Self-governance ultimately is a spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, that's self-governance. And what it looks like is we voluntarily take what we have and steward it for the benefit of others. And we don't coerce. We invite. And if each of us lives that life with our families, our friends, our neighbors, our community, our civil society then we are taking God's command to make disciples and putting it in action. And there's nothing more powerful than that in terms of a Christian witness. God, thank you for this amazing teaching that you give us. May we take it, embrace it, and apply it. In Jesus' name, amen.